Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Roofstock, the leading online marketplace for buying and selling leased single-family homes. Are you interested in adding rental real estate to your portfolio? A recent white paper called The Rate of Return on Everything examined global asset class returns all the way back to 1870 and concluded that residential real estate, not equity, has been the best long-run investment over the course of modern history. Roofstock offers quality pre-screen, single-family rental homes located in some of the best real estate markets in the country, with quality tenants already in place paying rent. And now, you can find all of this without ever leaving your own home. Roofstock is making what used to be an incredibly long and difficult researching and buying process fast and simple. That's because they do lots of the work for you by vetting properties, tenants, and property management companies so you can have all the info you need to find the right investment for you. Generating great income from rental properties has never been simpler. To learn more, visit roofstock.com forward slash meb. Again, that's roofstock.com forward slash meb. And now, on to the show. Welcome podcast listeners, it's summertime and today we have an amazing episode with a guest I'm very excited to have on, got to know at the poker table, he's a tech entrepreneur, renowned investor, kind of one of the godfathers of podcasting by the way, you're not that old, but how many episodes in? Yeah, we're uh, we're well over 700 now, started eight years ago. It's been called arguably the world's greatest angel investor, which you can read about in his fantastic new book, Angel. We feel very fortunate to have him on the show. Welcome, Jason Calcanis. Thanks for having me. So Jason just flew in, and I know there's been a ton of interest in angel investing, and we'll get to that, as well as many other things today. But like a lot of the investors we have on, a lot of personalities, a lot of different backgrounds, and I think yours is some great context for some of the advice that's in the book, and and I thought it'd be a good place to start. Maybe just give us a few minutes kind of where you came from, the path that got you to angel investing, and then we can turn over to uh, focusing on the investing world. So I'm a kid from Brooklyn and got into computers at a very early age in the 80s, had a PC junior, and worked my way through college and then wound up being in New York at the breaking of the internet when it just sort of became part of the public consciousness. And I started a a zine, which is a magazine that is self-produced for people who are millennials and haven't heard of a zine before, sort of a print blog. And that print blog, the zine, was called Silicon Alley Reporter, very quickly became a magazine, and I was a journalist for a decade or so, and still am a writer and uh, pundit, I guess. And that really sort of set me up with a huge network. I did a couple of companies. One of them I sold for $30 million to AOL. It was a blogging company called Weblogs, Inc., that did blogs like Engadget, Autoblog, Joystick, a lot of famous blogs. And so I hit that wave as well. So I got pretty good at timing waves, the internet blogging, et cetera. And when I was an entrepreneur in residence or in action at Sequoia Capital, working on my next company, which was Mahalo.com, which we pivoted to Inside.com, still exists. Uh, they had 
an idea for a Sequoia Scouts program. And I had been introducing a lot of entrepreneurs to Sequoia and some of my friends there. And, you know, a lot of my friends back 10, 15 years ago were raising funds and trying to, you know, we would talk about investors. And so I gave a lot of advice to people like Evan Williams from Twitter or Mark Pincus from Zynga or Elon Musk. And, you know, we were all just friends talking about startups back then, but I never angel invested. And then Sequoia's like, you know, you keep introducing us to these incredible companies. And we passed on Twitter and Zynga and Tesla, literally three companies I pushed them to invest in. And they said, why don't we just give you some money and you invest it? And I said, what's the catch? And they said, well, we'll split it 50-50. And I said, what's the catch? It's a pretty big carry, right? Like how much do you guys get? And they were like, well, you know, it's never going to be anything. So it's just going to be like this little early warning system for us. Cut 25 to 100K checks and we'll see how it goes. And all of a sudden, the first three, four investments, I hit two unicorns in a $100 million company. Actually, probably three unicorns in the first seven. So it was this crazy hit rate. And from there, I raised a fund and I've invested in 150 companies. And the idea of writing a book about angel investing happened just over a year and a half ago. The Wall Street Journal, this uh, kid Rolf over there, he got some documents, some LP papers or something about the Sequoia Scouts program. And it was this program that, you know, three or four million dollars was invested in and the portfolio became worth 200 uh, million. And they're like, how'd that happen? And it was my investments. And then Sam Altman from Y Combinator fame had done Stripe as well. So he was like 20 million of it and I was the other 180 million. That's a pretty fun winding road. And it's funny, you see a lot of journalism is, I think, actually a pretty great background for equity research in general, whether it's private or public. Before we keep going, is there a modern version of Silicon Alley Reporter this day and age? Is it TechCrunch or is there anything like it? I think there's TechCrunch and VentureBeat, Mashable. A bunch of people cover the startup scene, but, you know, journalism is dying a brutal death and it's pretty pretty dark i think you know the the quality of journalism is just falling off a cliff and the idea that you could take your time and write one story a week just doesn't exist people at like a tech crunch are filing three times a day four times a day they're not doing any kind of meaningful journalism you know it's, it's up to people like stratechery or the information or recode there's like very few places left that actually do real journalism where a writer like peter kafka you know, or the writers at the information or Kara Swisher could write something that takes three or four days to develop or three or four weeks, let alone. So, you know, the state of tech journalism is pretty, pretty bad. You know, we spend a lot of time on this podcast and in general moaning about curation and insight is actually a pretty interesting idea. We subscribe to a few newsletters on the podcasting and cannabis ones, but this fire hose of information and we struggle with it as investors so much. And then I think there's a lot of opportunity there and we think about it just constantly just i mean there's sites like seeking alpha that have something like 10,000 investment writers there's not 10,000 good investment writers you know there's there's very few but it's 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 a struggle i mean finding kind of the signal or the decent materials out of all that information is tough there's definitely a need for curation in the space that's what inside.com does primarily we have 25 newsletters what's the most popular do you know? Well, the Inside Daily Brief has over 100,000 people on it, and that's just twice a day. Here's what's happening in the news from global news, et cetera. And so that one is not a vertical. It's general news, and it's the biggest. But Inside AI, Inside Drones, Inside Bitcoin, you know, a bunch of these have 10, 20, 30,000 subscribers. And so I just did the math on it. We can get any newsletter to five to 
20,000 subscribers after a year. So I was just like, let's get to 50 and see what happens with the business. We've, we're halfway there. And we just started paid subscriptions last month. And, and that's already very promising. It'll get us to break even within six months. So I think going direct to consumers, having zero dependency on Facebook or Google or Twitter, and then having consumers pay is the only way journalism gets saved. You can't have any reliance on advertising and any reliance on an intermediary. You just have to go direct to consumers, which the information is doing pretty quite brilliantly. Stratechery is doing brilliantly. And so I think that's the big play, but it's a slow play. So I'm slowly grinding it out. Yeah, we think a lot about it. A lot of our listeners, let's start to talk a little bit about early stage investing. You know, a lot of our listeners are familiar with public market investing, obviously investing in the Facebooks and the Googles and IBMs, Walmarts of the world. But so let's start a little broadly when you're talking about this concept of angel investing. What's the kind of quick way that you would describe the basics of angel investing? Like, what, what does that mean to you? So angel investing, I define as individuals primarily investing in companies in the phase before venture capitalists get involved. So anything before the Series A is really angel investing. And there's a whole bunch of micro little moments there along that timeline before the Series A. The Series A, when a Sequoia or a Benchmark or a Kleiner Perkins invests, let's say, 5 to $15 million in the Series A, which is a lot of money. It's uh, gone up over the years. It used to be 2 or 3 or $4 million in the Series A. But now Series A has happened when there's much more traction. So there are about five or six opportunities to invest before it hits the Series A. And even in the Series A, there might be angel investors of note in them. And so you're investing in companies that are either pre-launch, recently launched, or have modest traction. If the company has $5 million a year in revenue and it's predictable revenue and they've figured it out, well, then they qualify for venture capital. And if they are scaling that revenue to any meaningful level and tripling it every year, well, then they're on the way to going public, right? And so the more you can analyze the company through their data, the greater the chance that it's not an angel investment. And the reason there's such a huge opportunity there to have a 100x return or a 500 or a 5,000, and that's an outlier, obviously. But to have those kind of opportunities, there needs to be some level of risk. In other words, for Uber or Thumbtack to be worth four or five million in their first rounds of funding, which I participated in both of those, those companies were highly speculative companies at the time. And to invest in, you know, if Masa is going to invest in Uber right now or General Atlantic, and they're going to pay 50 or 60 or $70 billion. They can look at the number of rides, the number of cities, the growth in each city. There's a whole swath of data for them to look at. There's eight years of Uber data now. And it's incredible, incredibly granular. So when people see these very high valuations for these private companies that are in their later stages, and it's typically happening through very smart hedge fund money or public money that's dipping down at the private phase, I wouldn't worry about those folks. They're doing their diligence, generally speaking, or overwhelmingly and they know what they're doing. So angel investing is that early period. Now, most of the time, people are using sweat equity or friends and family money to get them to the launch of a product. So what I advise people in the book is to try to find what I call the Goldilocks zone, which is before the revenue is so high and the traction is so apparent that a VC would invest, but after they've launched the product. And that's the Goldilocks zone, not too hot, not too cold. That's what I specialize in. And that really greatly reduces your risk because of the 100 companies that raise money that say they're going to build a product, 
less than half of them actually get their product to market and probably only 1% of them get any kind of traction. So if you just wait for the 1% that have traction, you've now eliminated 99% of the risk. Now you're in that 1% or 2% pool. And of that pool, probably half of them don't scale the traction in any meaningful way. So now you're down to 50 bips of that original pool and you can really reduce your downside risk when investing in these companies. A couple of things on what you talk about. One of the best and biggest challenges of angel investing is it's actually pretty similar to public market investing. There's a great paper we'll link to in the show notes called The Capitalism Distribution that looks at stocks. So back to the 1980s, and it shows that two-thirds of stocks underperform the index, something like 40% are negative returning investments. And these are big public equities, and something like a quarter just basically go to zero. And 10 to 20% generate all the gains. So this law of just like these, a couple huge outliers, the Amazons, McDonald's of the world, this is even probably more true in the angel investing space where, you know, there's a, there's a pretty low batting average, but the wins are huge. Correct. And what I try to explain to people who want to get involved in angel investing is how to go slow in the beginning and learn and to play small bets and then to quadruple down on the winners. As I said earlier, there's probably four or five or six opportunities to invest in these companies by angel investors before they hit escape velocity and they don't need angel money anymore. They need five, ten million dollar checks. They don't need fifty or a hundred thousand dollar checks. So if you have that many opportunities and you have what's called pro rata, the ability to maintain your percentage ownership in later rounds, there's gonna be an opportunity for you to quadruple down. And so what you wanna do is learn slowly and play small bets to start. Just like if you were learning poker, the idea of sitting down at the $100, $200 table, you know, the game where, that I play in every week, which is a five dollars or $10,000 buy-in, you wouldn't play that game when you were learning. You'd play the one $2 game. You would waste $40 for each buy-in, and you'd do that three or four times in a night, and you wouldn't feel too stupid if you left Hollywood Park down $200, which is what I did for five years. You know, I, I avoided playing in the big games. I kept getting invited as well, as it were. And I think that's the best model for angel investing. Start very slow, build your network, because you do need to have a network to have deal flow, and learn. And if you have, let's say, 10 or 20 investments and they're only $1,000 each or $5,000 each, and that represents just 1% or 2% of your net worth, if one of those hits and does 50 or 100 or 200 to one, what it does to your net worth is pretty amazing, right? And uh, I think in the public markets and certainly commodities and bonds, these kind of opportunities don't exist. So the reason I really wrote the book is because I think the ability to become affluent or change your station in life from poor to middle class, middle class to affluent is getting harder and harder. And I, I think that this is a little secret way, uh, a very opaque dark art of becoming truly wealthy, like independently wealthy, like massive wealth. And most people don't know about it. Nobody's really written books on it. Certainly nobody successful has written, no successful angel has written a book on it because I don't think most angels think it's in their best interest to invite more people to the party. And part of this is just the the simple math of it. I mean, the typical market cap or valuation range for an uh, angel investment, is it like one to 10 million? Yeah, I would say when I started, it was, Two to five million dollars was an angel investment, a seed round. Now I'd say seed rounds are three to eight million. So probably on average five, six, seven. But it had peaked about two years ago during the Uber, Airbnb, Instacart, you know, peak valuations at the time. 
And during that period, we saw people coming out of Y Combinator with eight to fifteen million dollar valuations with little or no traction, and it was it was kind of laughable um, for a period. And I kind of just paused and you know sat it out uh, because anybody who's asking for ridiculous valuations like that, it's a bit of a tell that they're disconnected from reality and want to have an adversarial relationship with investors. Probably not a good thing. And so. Most of the time, I'd say five, six, seven million is what you'd be looking at for a seed round in Silicon Valley today. And so, just for perspective, listeners, you know, the a small cap. Most of what these public funds would even consider dipping their toes into for a lot of big mutual funds is like two billion. Some of them will come down to maybe two hundred million if they consider themselves smaller micro caps. So, if you think about an investment at a ten million dollar valuation, so they're even at the top of the range, you know, for that to go ten x, a hundred x, which what we would call a unicorn, that barely gets you into the small cap range for a lot of these public funds. So you have the ability to have these truly exponential sort of outcomes. Whereas if you're buying a stock that's maybe a small or mid or small cap at a billion, you know, for that to have a hundred X, it needs to become a really, really big company. But it's also a bit of a minefield as well. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about some practical advice. And again, investors, just go read the book. There's a lot in here that, that we'll just touch on briefly. But Jason, you mentioned to get started, you need you know, one of four, four things, money, time, network, expertise. Could you touch on, you know, the, that just briefly or ones that you think are more or less important to someone just getting started? Yeah. So if you go to Silicon Valley and you attend demo days and all you have is a checkbook, you're a trust fund kid or a plastic surgeon, whatever, somebody with disposable income and a lot of disposable time, you can just write checks. I literally met somebody at Ycomber Demo Day. I said, what do you do? You know, what's your company do? Because it was 20 years old. He said, oh, no, I'm an investor. And I said, oh, really? How many companies do you have? I said, oh, 20. I said, oh, where do you work? And he says, I have my own fund. And I said, oh, can I ask how old you are? I said, 21 or something. And I said, how did you get money to invest? And how, what's your typical check? So I said, oh, 50,000. It was dad had given him a fund or something, which was awesome. I was totally jealous. And so if you just want to write checks, <laughs> trust me, people will cash them. So you only need to have that. And I joke a little bit in the book that people come to me for advice and for my network, but mostly for the cash. And that's me. And I have the biggest network of anybody probably. And and I have, in terms of advice, some of the best advice, but on a network basis and the ability to promote a startup, I'm, there's very few people who have anywhere near what I have in terms of followers and, and the reach of my podcast. So I think just being able to write a check qualifies you. And being in Silicon Valley qualifies you to hit some decent chance of returns. So expertise, people overthink this a bit. Every startup needs help in some core areas. Hiring, sales at some point, management, operations. So if you were a career salesperson for a telecom company and you saw a startup that was just starting to hire sales executives and you emailed the founder and said, I would like to trade you my management services and sales advice and I'll help you set up your sales team. I'll you know, interview the people, hire them, train them, et cetera. You could be an advisor to that company and instead of taking $100,000 in consulting fees, take 25000 in consulting fees and 75000 in equity. So I talk in the book a little bit about the common practice in Silicon Valley and other places of advisors. So a board of advisors has no fiduciary legal responsibility like a board of directors. A board of advisors is just a fungible term. It means nothing. There's no legal concept there. It just means you're advising somebody and some companies have board of advisors and some don't, but usually it's two years, 25 to 50 bips, you know, 1% even. 
and I, I got started with a lot of advisorships. And so th- that's another way to get on the cap table, the capitalization table of a startup, basically, which is a Google spreadsheet or an Excel spreadsheet with how many shares there are in the company and who owns them. And literally sitting in my Google Drive is Uber's first cap table with like, here's everybody on the cap table. And it was just a, an Excel spreadsheet, right? Uh, then eventually these things become more formalized and companies go public and the shares exist in other systems. But you can get on the cap table by being an advisor to the company, an employee of the company, starting the company, or being an investor. So there's actually four ways to get equity in these companies. So even if you were broke and had no money, you could theoretically get on a cap table by starting a company, working for one, or being an advisor to one. And so as people think about it, they say, okay, I'm going to commit whether it's through the sweat or through, I'm going to start angel investing. I'm going to take it slow. I read Jason's book. I'm going to start networking. By the way, my, my favorite chapter in your book, I used to want to write a joke book on losing weight, just an exercise called, and every chapter was just exercise more and eat less. Yeah. And you have a chapter in the book where it says, do I need to be in Silicon Valley? And the entire chapter just said one word, said yes. Yeah, it's chapter five. It's quite <laughs> controversial. So, I, but I loved it. But, but, you know, and I don't think that was you saying you like, it's impossible to do it anywhere else. It's just a lot. Yeah, to be a great angel investor, I think you need to be in Silicon Valley. Because a lot of tailwinds. If you just think about the number of investors there and the number of opportunities, it's somewhere between 100 to 10,000 to one another market. What I tell people is if you're in Silicon Valley and you're trying to match eight numbers on your lottery ticket, they give you the first five. You know, if you're playing Texas Hold'em in Silicon Valley, you, your first card's the ace of spades every time you're probably going to have a playable hand in all likelihood, right? Most hands will be playable when you start with an ace. Give me some broad, just framework, some other things. So you talk about this in the book, but you know how much of your net worth should you put to play? How many positions should you look to build? What's your time frame? Just some of the basics on putting together an angel portfolio. I'm curious as to what you think of what percentage you should put into it. But what I'll say is, I think if you're going to do this half-time or full-time, let's say 10 to 50 hours a week, and it's becoming a class of employment, I believe. It's going to be a full-time job, angel investing. It didn't used to be considered a full-time job or a career, but I think with VCs moving downstream to Series A when you have three, four, five million dollars in revenue, there's actually this huge opportunity that's opening up in the Goldilocks zone to actually do this as a career. So if we think about it like a career, if you had a net worth of a couple of million dollars, if you were to lose, if you allocated 10% of it to angel investing as an accredited investor, that might be 300000 of your $3 million of net worth. If you were to lose it all, on average, in the public markets, you would break even. You'd recoup that in what, 18 months, 12 months, 24 months, depending on you know the market's performance that year or years. And so... I think there's very little downside risk to that. And if you were able to recoup half of it in returns, well, then you'd only be losing 5% of your net worth, which you would recoup very quickly. At the same time, you would be learning a heck of a lot and hanging out with the smartest people in the world who want to change the world. And with the outside possibility of hitting the lottery. And so when I look at it, I can't imagine that people wouldn't do this if they had the time because it's so enjoyable to work with these companies and the possibility of having an outsized return is, you know, so realistic in Silicon Valley, while the downside is somewhat protected. If you do 30, 40, 50 angel investments in Silicon Valley and one of them returns 20x or 10x or 50x, you're going to be somewhere 
in the losing half your money or losing two thirds of your money to doubling your money. And I do think that's the probably the likely outcome, lose half or double your money. That's probably the likely pattern until you hit 50 or 75 or 100 investments in year five, six, seven, you may hit a unicorn. Now, will you hit six like I have? I doubt it. I don't know that. I don't know that I'm going to wind up being the greatest of all time, but it's probably, it's definitely my goal. So I'm in the top five, but it's possible you could hit a unicorn. And if you do, and you have that 50 or 100x, you know, you're, you're going to be well into the black. So I like the idea of people putting, I'll say one to 10% of their net worth into this, because if you lost it, you it wouldn't be a huge loss. And if it does hit and you go 100x, you've now doubled your overall net worth, which where are that, where does that possibility exist in other investment vehicles? So we actually agree with you. And we, you know, we've written books on this topic where we say, look, public markets, asset allocation, the vast majority of them you will eventually get wealthy if you have a time frame of 30 plus years. And, but it's mostly a stay rich or keep up with inflation sort of strategy. Asset allocation and public markets in general, it's really hard to have that exponential life-changing sort of wealth. And you have to have sort of the Warren Buffett style returns, which are 20%. And we've had some buddies write some articles on that, which is in public markets, 20% returns is almost impossible. And if you do it, you end up as some of the top investors, the George Soros is the Warren Buffetts of the world. But it's interesting to me as, as a kind of angel investor. And so I started doing this in, I think, 2014. And my goal was, said, was kind of what you described. I said, look, I'm going to start really slow. It's going to be $1,000 checks. I think the biggest is up to 10. And my goal is to break even. But the huge benefits have been the learning, but also a not trivial benefit is getting the contagious optimism. And I'm a quant. So I mean, everything I do in public markets is rules-based. And so for me, this is an interesting exercise because I'm the world's worst discretionary public market investor. But that's why I'm rules-based and quant. So it's been really fun experiencing. And for me, oddly enough, the area that I'm most versed in haven't done any investments in, which would be asset management or fintech sort of the world. So it's been a great education. There's a great stat And here's also a challenge, though, and probably why it's so much opportunity, is that Kreft did a study that showed that the average person spends more time researching what TV they're going to buy than their retirement investments or anything, right? And so uh, the challenge of the angel investing is it's very hard to find information. And so a lot of the things you mentioned, the network and the expertise, you know, that's a pretty steep learning curve. And so... What are some of the resources or sites or places to go that you think are good starting points for people to find more information? The reason I wrote the book was genuinely there is not a lot of information out there. And so, you know, that that really is the reason I wrote it, because if you look, it's like, where do you even start after you read the book? And the book is really an opportunity cost. I, I was talking to somebody about it and they're like, why did you write the book? I was like, you know, it's. I think it's part of my legacy and I, I want to have other people benefit from it because I'm going to do 150 more investments myself and then I'm done. That'll be 300 and we'll see if I can hit 10, 12 unicorns. I, ha- or I have a sort of master plan in mind of a 10-year arc of this career and then I think I'm going to hang it up to be honest. Well, I'll make the decision when I'm 50 or 51 but that's basically my current plan is to do 150 more investments. Then what though? I can figure it out but you know, I have to, I have to think it through but I can tell you it's 
when you have this many investments, it's intense. Um, I mean, I like it. I'm an intense person. I, I like being engaged. I like playing high stakes poker, but I'm not sure I want to do it for the rest of my life. So I'm going to give it another five years, um, maybe finish another fund. We'll see. Um, and, uh, you know, for people to get a feel for how to do this, I think, and I outline this in the book, doing 10 or 20 small syndicate style investments. There's a concept of an angel syndicate was pioneered by a website called AngelList, which you can Google. And AngelList has a bunch of different micro funds on it. You can put $20,000 or $10,000 into a fund led by a syndicate lead. They do five investments on your behalf. Uh, or you can go to Seed Invest or Republic uh, or my syndicate, which used to be on AngelList, but we got a little bit too big for them. And now we're on Jason's syndicate. Um, and we will share a deal memo with you. Here's the next investment we're doing, if you're an accredited investor. We'll share a deal memo with you, and we'll talk about non-accredited investors, because they're gonna be able to come to the party soon. And we'll just say, hey, here's the deal. If you want to invest, go ahead and invest. Pick a number between $1,000 and $100,000. We have an allocation for three or $400,000 in this angel startup. And we get 20% of the carry. So we have some upside. If it goes well, you pay a very low price. Uh, in terms of the carry on the investment, you only pay us if we find a company that has a return. And if you don't like that particular company, you can pass. And so what's very interesting is you could join a bunch of these syndicates on Seedinvest, um, AngelList, Republic, Jason Syndicate, uh, and who, Funders who, Club, and you can just pass on every investment and just read the deal memos and do it like fantasy sports where you just read it and say, what if I would have invested what happens and just track it over time if you want to just do fantasy baseball, which somebody suggested to me after I wrote the book and I was like, wow, that would have been a good chapter. I'll add it to the next one, which is if you can't afford any of this in your 20s, just do angel investing as a practice of look at Crunchbase, look at Mattermark and say the company was valued at $20 million in less funding. I'm going to pretend I put $10,000 into it. Let me check back. I'll write my thesis. I'll write my own deal memo, and I'll see how it feels in 10 years or five years from now, uh, and how it did. So you've generated a couple spinoff questions. First, are there any like kind of syndicate leads that would come to mind that are doing this that you think are would be good people in general to follow? Yeah, if you go to um, AngelList, you'll see Ed Roman is quite good, quite considered. And you'll see um, Tom Williams and you'll see Gil Pinchina. All three of those are pretty well considered. One of the trends that's interesting is a lot of the people in angel investing do so well that they then wind up calling in rich. They just decide to become VCs or they just check out. Chris Saka just was like, why am I doing this every day? I'm out. Uh, and this happens over and over again. Mark Andreessen was doing angel investing when I met him 15 years ago. He was going to invest in my company, Weblogs Inc. And now he is running Andreessen Horowitz with billions of dollars under management and raising billion dollar funds and writing $50 million checks, not 50000 or 250000 So I think you have to look at it and say, the, one of the big challenges I think is, the challenge and the opportunity is that these angels just, they outgrow it. And I've tried to scale angel investing myself. And that's what I'm, my efforts have been at. So I think going to any of these sites and just signing up and backing any of them and just placing very small micro bets and then using those to build your network is the is the real strategy that I outline in the book. So let's say you do 20 investments at $1,000 each through syndicates. Then you look on Crunchbase or Mattermark or any of these online databases to see who are the co-investors. Now you make a Google sheet with 20 investments with 20 co-investors. You should get 400 names. Maybe there's some duplicate. 
you find out who the dupes are and you email those first and say, hey, we're investors in these three companies, these two companies together. I'm in San Francisco on these dates. I'm in Los Angeles on these dates. Let's get coffee. And then we can share a deal flow. Or you just email all 400 and say, hey, we're co-investors in company name. You do a mail merge. I'm going to guess a third or half get back to you on the first email. And I'm going to guess 10%, five or 10% meet with you. Now you've built a network. And this is you know one of those things everybody's like, oh my God, it's so hard to build a network. And for me, I've always kind of had a a preternatural ability to build networks. I don't know if how maybe it's just surviving in Brooklyn and having to build alliances was kind of Game of Thrones ish. And so, if you just do this simple technique, invest in ten companies, find the co investors. Now all of a sudden you're going to have a world class network, and you're going to be able to trade deal flow. And then you now have proprietary deal flow, which is you email the 400 people and say. My next company I'm investing in is Acme. Here's my reason for investing in Acme. If you want an introduction to Acme CEO, let me know. You do something like that, and seven of those people take an introduction and two of them invest. Now you're doing what the top flight angels like, I, like myself do, which is they, they have proprietary deal flow, and they're able to syndicate deals to help the founder, which builds your reputation with founders, which then builds your deal flow because those founders tell other founders because they all talk, Jason's the nuts. He always gives me great support and introduces me to great angel investors. There's two interesting comments I'll make. The first is that one of the nice things about investing with the syndicates or other angel investors is very often they're former entrepreneurs. And so they kind of know what it's taken. Maybe they sold a company like you did or, or kind of been through it. And so it's not like you're just investing in a public market investor. And, and one of the things we talk a lot about on this podcast is skin in the game. And there's a stat that's something like 70 or 80%, and the numbers are always up around this high, of mutual fund managers, and this is asset allocation, mutual funds have zero invested in their fund. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it's just insane. But, you know, of course, they want you to invest, and you say, why in God's name would you ever do this? So the nice thing about a lot of the syndicates is you're co-investing with that manager. So, yes, you're paying carry, but the, the benefit is that they care. Yeah, this is this was a big debate when... Naval launched AngelList, which was some of the syndicates were only investing, say, $5,000, and then they were had their syndicate investing $400,000. So they place a $5,000 bet. They would get the 20% of the gain on $400,000. So just theoretically, back of the envelope, you can consider that similar to getting 20% of that $400,000, which would be $80,000. So now you bet five, but you're getting... You know, call it eighty-five thousand in in play. You're going to place bets differently than you would if you were getting a lower ratio, right? So, I always invested twenty-five and then had two hundred thousand. So that was like a ten-to-one ratio on my money in terms of leverage or so. Other people were getting, you know, eighty-to-one, which was for some people they thought that was creating some um, risk or some misalignment. But if you look at it and the person's investing, let's say 20 to 1, 30 to 1, I think, is that money reasonable? If they lost it, they would not feel good about it, right? And then I, I started thinking about it myself and I was like, you know, I'm actually more conservative with my syndicate than I am with my own money. I actually feel a higher sense of duty when I'm doing a syndicate, which I don't, I, I can't tell you if that's actually in the best interest of the syndicate members that I actually care so much. You know, it's almost like this uh, show Billions when Axelrod's like, I want to invest my own money or I'm going to invest other people's money. He was having this real trying time trying to figure out when is he a better investor? 
and then he changes from his suit to jeans and his t-shirt. I don't know if you watch the show. Yeah, yeah, of course. You remember this? He's is wearing he, like a Metallica t-shirt or something. Yeah, and he just he walks in. in. He's like, I'm putting a billion dollars of my money in. You can come along for the ride or not. Let me know how much you're in for. And if you're not in for anything, you don't need to call me because I'm, I'm this train's leaving the station anyway, basically, long and short of it. And I thought that was pretty freeing because you, you got the sense Axelrod was putting his own money to work and you could either come along for the ride or not, but it's going to be a heck of a ride. I mean, he's going to go with his gut. And that's, I think what makes the great investors is that they can think contrarian, they can have independent critical thinking. And if you're going along for the ride and you're only vetting 10% of your net worth and that 10% of your net worth is going to be across 50 companies, that means each individual company is 20 basis points of your net worth, you really can relax and enjoy it. And the big cardinal mistake people make when they start angel investing is they have a $300,000 stack and they decide, okay, F it. Let me put it in, I'll put 150 into this first company I meet. They seem like really charismatic founders. This is a really good pitch. You know what? The people who self-select to be founders are people who are charismatic and convincing. That's how they get people to come work for them for free or for half of the market rate that their normal salary is. That's how they convince the world to bend to their vision. They're charismatic, convincing people. Then they burn that 150, they come back, and now you've burned 150. They convince you to put another 50 in, they convince you to put another 50 in, now you're in 250 into one investment, and you've blown your whole chip stack. Then I see people go through this where they're invested in three startups, and they quit angel investing after burning $300,000 in three startups for 400000 in three startups, and they go too fast. And what they don't realize is if that company's taking money from you, a new angel investor, that's because they've already asked me and Chris Saka and Gil Pancina and Ed Roman and Esther Dice and everybody else for money. We all turned them down. You are the last desperate Hail Mary pass as a new angel investor. So if you want to take those odds that all of us passed and you invested and you think that we all couldn't see it, but you can as somebody new to it, that's like sitting down with Phil Helmuth and you know Phil Ivey and a bunch of and, and Daniel Negreanu and sitting at a poker table and just thinking, you know better how to play this flop. You don't. You probably don't know how to play the flop better. You could get lucky, but it's unlikely. The old poker analogy: Who's the fish at the table? Right. Exactly. If you can't identify the fish, it is you. Yeah. But so the syndicates is one nice way to do that. Your interests are aligned as you kind of learn and start small. And and I think it's also important is the way I think about it is commit to X number of years where you're going to say eventually you'll go through another bear market in the U.S. and valuations come down and wash out and probably When's that coming. It's, the, been, it's been the, it's been almost ten years. The, right? You know, from from a quant, you know, Are we, we all, nine years in. Now? We always say it's a spectrum of future probabilities. And as as a, someone who speculates at the poker table, you know, you want to put the odds in your favor. So we say that public equities in the U.S. are going to return maybe four percent going forward, mm-hmm. nominal. But the higher the valuation you get, the higher chance you have a big fat drawdown. And U.S. stocks, as we know, um, have declined by over 80% in the past in the Great Depression. NASDAQ did plus 85 from minus 85 in, in 2000, 2003. The good news is at least a lot of foreign equity markets are very cheap. So we say a lot of these foreign countries could still do double digits. But most U.S. investors are very U.S. specific, a lot of home country bias. So we're also trend followers, though. So who knows? The valuations have hit in the peak in 99, they hit 45 PEs, we're at around 30. 
45 trailing years. 10, 10 year average. So this is a very long term metric. So we've seen this before, but that's the only time it's been this high before. 10 year average. 10 year PE average that adjusts for inflation. It's called Got a it. Schiller Cape ratio. Yes. But in Japan in the late 80s, it hit almost 100. Mm. So that's the beauty of these sort of things, the bubbles that, that they could always go further than you expect. And on the downside, it's hit as low as five. But the rest of the world is pretty cheap. A lot of Europe and emerging Europe is down around 10. So there's, there's some yin and yang, but it's, it doesn't mean it has to crash. It just means that it's the, the odds of hitting an inside straight on the yeah. river is you know a little less likely. I dialed everything back. I, my belief is like this is we're bouncing along the top. And so I'm on, I use Wealthfront. I'm an advisor and investor in Wealthfront. So I have my Wealthfront dialed to three as opposed to I had it on 10. And I was just like, you know, six months or a year before the election, I was just like, eh, I'm going to put it on three and just pair my equity. So I, I missed, well, I didn't fully participate in the top part of this rally, but I kind of feel like you just dial back your risk as you start peaking is probably a wise idea. And I got foreign equities and bonds. But well, that's that's the beauty of the automated services is they, um, fr- from someone who's kind of does it on their own and implemented them, they... It's hard to imagine a world where people go back to the old school way of, of you know, the, the high fee brokers. But that's a whole nother podcast. I fired all my brokers. Yeah, that's a whole nother podcast. We, we only have you for so long. So I want to touch on a few more things. Let's pause for a moment to hear again from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Roofstock, the leading online marketplace for buying and selling leased single family rental homes. I actually interviewed Roofstock's founders, Gary and Gregor, back in episode 63. And I was genuinely impressed with how these guys are radically simplifying rental real estate investing. The process used to be incredibly time intensive. First, you had to identify a market, look at tons of homes, then do some due diligence, make some offers, negotiate the price, and finally buy. And then you had to find a property manager to handle leasing and operations for you. What a nightmare. I've always been gun shy about rental real estate investing due to these various operational headaches that can come with it. But Roofstock has changed all that. Every one of these properties comes leased up and pre-certified by the Roofstock team. They even connect you with vetted property managers who handle all of the day-to-day headaches for you. They browse properties all over the country, including locally here in Los Angeles and even my hometown in Winston-Salem. And learn more about how to generate real estate income with peace of mind, visit roofstock.com forward slash meb. Again, that's roofstock.com forward slash meb. And now back to the show. Talk to me about the pitch meeting. You know, you sit down with someone and again, read the book. There's there's templates for questions to ask before, during, um, questions to ask yourself. So we're not gonna spend a lot of time here, but but I think a lot of people probably don't think about these meetings correctly. Um, and you had a great phrase called big ears, small mouth rule. So just real briefly, let's talk about pitch meetings and then we can hit some other... It's sort of like being a podcast host, right? You have If you have a great guest, you're gonna wanna you know, ask short, tight questions like you've been doing and, and get the best out of them and get them warmed up and talking, right? And once people start talking, the truth comes out eventually. I always tell people when you're listening to a podcast, start with the last 20 minutes if you only have 20 minutes to listen because when somebody gets to that minute 40, they're gonna be loose, they're used to talking, they're gonna open up. And so when you when I look at a meeting, I wanna ask short questions. What are you working on? What are you working on? Five words. <laughs> and this is a very short question and it celebrates the fact that there's a you in it the founder and work and i like this question because it sets the tone of work and that this is serious business and i take it seriously i take what i do seriously i take startups seriously 
And I'm looking for people who share that level of commitment and who work hard. And there's a lot of tourists in our industry right now. It's tourist season. Whenever the market gets hot, when you know Facebook hits or Uber, Airbnb hit, and you have a movie like The Social Network, or you know Netscape happened last time, or the dot com boom before you know in between that, all of these things trigger tourist season, and we are in high tourist season. So I right now my job is just sorting through people who are just going to give up and go back to whatever they were doing before they thought they could be a founder. Being a founder is a very hard job. Most people are not suited for it. You have to have a demented, sadistic desire to change the world. And you have to be willing to deal with 100 days. Of those 100 days, 98 of them are going to be just arduous. And then two of them are going to just be absolutely brutal. There are no good days. It's just, you know, maybe when you sell your company, it's good for like a day or two. And then you regret it. Like even in that instance, so it's very complicated. It's very hard. And so I want to determine if the person is legit or not. So by just asking them what are they working on, I can get them warmed up. The question that I like most when I'm now analyzing companies is why now? Why will this company work now? What's changed? Because there are so many founders working on so many different ideas that usually if something is going to work, it's because something has changed. If you look at Uber, there were many people who had the idea for Uber before Uber in fact, there was a company in New York I used to cover as a journalist called Vindigo, and you could text Vindigo Sushi Restaurant New York or Sushi Restaurant you know, 23rd Street and would return back over SMS the restaurants in that area. You could also order a taxi over it, and you would SMS that you want to taxi this location, they would call you back. So it was basically one step better than calling a taxi company. I was a big Taxi Magic user right. here. Right. And did it work well? or It was SMS it was or his o- phone? It was okay. His phone. It, you called on the phone. It, it, it turned into something else. Yeah. But so I there were remember. people who tried it, but I really think the why now for Uber and, and for Lyft was GPS on phones because you could see in real time the car coming to you and also payment systems, but really GPS. So c- the commercialization of GPS allowed for a bunch of startups that wouldn't previously had existed if GPS didn't exist, right? And if you look at storage and you look at bandwidth, that was the why now for YouTube and to a certain extent, even Netflix now. Netflix and YouTube, because streaming has become so cheap and storage has become so cheap, it works. Mark Cuban was writing about how Netflix would never be able to scale because of what he knew about broadband. And then broadband, all that dark fiber came online and it was free and had been overbuilt. So the dot-com boom overbuilt so much fiber, it became so cheap, storage became so cheap that all of a sudden bandwidth starts costing a hundredth of what it cost five years earlier and whatever anybody thought was possible previously w- had now changed. You, th- the reward you got for posting a video online used to be a $5,000 bill. If you posted a video online and you let anybody watch it, you would get penalized for doing so. So just think about that. Creating a video 15 years ago, there was no way to post it on the internet without putting your credit card on it. Now you can post video all day long for free. You can shoot 4K video and have it online for free. You can shoot 4K video and upload an unlimited amount of it for free to YouTube. That is insane. We were, if we were sitting here 15 years ago, people would say that's insane. That's just not possible. And so what I'm always looking for is that why now? And if you think about it, you know, there's going to be a big why now over robotics, one of my favorite things right now, where you know, just there was a lot of false starts to robotics. We've had like six or seven times robotics was going to change everything the Roomba, the Segway. It was just a lot of times that 
this was going to happen and it didn't. And I think now is actually the time it's going to happen. AI, same thing. We had six or seven times that was going to happen. VR and AR, we had five or six times that was going to happen. And, you know, these technological trends, sometimes they take four or five times to actually hit. Uh, storage online and, and bandwidth took multiple times to hit and now they've hit and we see what happened a 10-year boom in cloud computing we have a similar 10 20-year boom in robotics ai and vr ar and i think even in genetics and biotech for sure yeah i was a former biotech guy and around for the first kind of bubble and this promise of genomics and genetic data but remember like at the time people were saying look even if we had all this data this the cycle of building these drugs 10 20 years, but we're finally getting to that time when a lot of these drugs are coming online and it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and kids are using CRISPR and yeah. people are making glow-in-the-dark plants using like, you know, DNA splices from glowing eels and putting it into, you know, tobacco plants. It's pretty crazy. So moving on from the pitch meeting, you know, and thinking about evaluating the deal, timing, like you mentioned, is, is sort of a big, there's an element of luck in that, of course, but, you know, it's important. Can you touch briefly on why uh, a couple other deal valuation terms, whether it's pro rata or valuation. And then also I'd like to hear a little bit about your, your sell methodology. So if you have an investment that then eventually IPOs or acquired or secondary, how do you eventually um, liquidate a position? Like what's the, what's yeah. the method? I'll take the, the second one first. If you have a breakout success in the early days, you're going to want to quadruple down on it. So, if you invested, you know, 5K at a $5 million valuation, and now the company gets Sequoia to invest at a 15 or $20 million valuation, that should tell you something. Sequoia or Benchmark are not investing unless they can go 100X or 200X in their mind. So that means there's another 100X opportunity. So you invested at five, they're investing at 20. So there's a 4X lift. If they ask to buy your shares, you should have in your mind, if they're investing, they're investing because they see this as a multi-billion dollar company. If the smartest kids in the room think it's a multi-billion dollar company, I'm holding. And now I'm going to put place a bet of five times. So you put 5K into that first tranche for five at a $5 million valuation. Now it's a $20 million valuation. Sequoia's coming in. You want to jam in 50,000 maybe, 10X or 25,000, whatever you can. Because if they think it's going to go 100X, now you've got you know, 5K that's going to go 400x and then your 25k or 50k is going to go 100x you can just do the math on that and see where you wind up so you want to double down now if you get to the point where it's a company like airbnb or uber and these are companies that are hitting spectacular valuations and the people who are investing are public market investors and they're investing because they want to get in right before the ipo and so they are expecting maybe to double their money in four or five years, and that would be success for them. They're expecting a 2X, right? If TPG is investing in a company or some other hedge fund or public market fund, what are they expecting to do in your mind? Like double their money every three or four years would be a great outcome for them. And it, there's very few places for them to double a billion dollar investment or a $3 billion investment. So if they're looking to double a $3 billion investment or a billion dollar investment, well, maybe it's time for you to take some money off the table and, and book a win. So I like the idea of dollar cost averaging and just, you know, it's always stuck with me. I think Warren Buffett or his partner, Charlie Munger, said, like, how'd you get rich? And they, somebody said it before them, but, you know, selling too early. So I think selling 25% of your position maybe four times and just do it as you're on that peaking uh, situation and maybe letting the 25, the last 25% keep rolling when it goes public because, Companies like, 
you know, Netflix or Google have returned tremendously post going public. But you also have to ask yourself, has something fundamentally changed in how companies go public? By the time they go public, if you look at the recent cohort, how much is left? How much is left for Twitter, Snap, Twilio, Box when they go public? How far have they come already? Are they going to go 5 or 10x? We'll see. You know, I think Uber and Airbnb have a 5 or 10x left in them. Certainly, they have 10x left in them each, I think. But for other companies, does Dropbox have that? I don't know. You know, just does... You know, Twitter have it? Not sure. But some people looked really smart when they invested in Twitter late. You know, I think Kleiner Perkins famously put like two hundred million in or something at a three or four billion dollar valuation. Obviously shot up to forty five billion, came back down to fifteen or whatever. Either way, they still looked really good cash on cash. So I think dollar cost averaging, getting your money out when you're hitting that peak. And banking a win is always a good idea uh, for people. It's it's actually really important. We spend almost all of our time talking about behavioral issues with investing. And in public markets, this happens all the time. And people so much want to think in binary terms. Should I hold gold or should I sell it? Are US stocks expensive or are they cheap? Should I sell my Uber or keep it? And and this concept of never going kind of all in but scaling is such a powerful concept to investors to behave better because it keeps them from that sort of hindsight bias. Oh man, I wish I had sold this. I wish I had bought this. And it gives you a blended average. Now, the reason not a lot of people do it is because they like to gamble and they like having something to cheer for, which isn't the best way to invest. But And by the way, this is one of the, for the longest time, people talk about private investing and angel investing as one of the downsides is the illiquidity. And I've actually come around over the last three, four years as thinking is that is one of the major benefits because investors and public stock investors one of their worst enemies is themselves and they muck around their portfolios and it to their detriment, but private stock valuation, one, you end up being more thoughtful, I hope, because you may not be able to sell for five or 10 years, if ever. Yeah. Five to 10 years, is probably a good lockup period. It's a very astute observation actually, because there were many times in notable companies I've invested in that people tried to get out and they weren't allowed to and it wound up 10xing or 20xing them. And then I do know of some situations in notable companies where people got out and literally six months later, I know of one that was particularly brutal, the person got out at X and it went 4X six months later in the valuation and they had to explain to their LPs why they sold six months earlier. And then it continued on to go 7X from there. So that's 28X from when they sold half their position. Now, that they sold way too early, that that half of the position. And listen, it may have returned the fund, but that's a really, to sell half your position that early and something that's still going up, you have to do the work. I mean, if you look at the size of a company like Airbnb or an Uber, and you understand the opportunity ahead of those companies, and you understand the market size, you can really understand that you want to be slow in selling them because of how big the opportunity is. But this requires work. And I think some people sell everything too early. Some people hold forever. There is, there's definitely something in the middle where you're selling a piece. If Now, if you had only sold 25% and it went 28X, you know, you're, you're only leaving a quarter of that on the table. So you don't feel as bad. It's when you start selling your whole position or half your position too early that this psychology comes to play. But I think it's very important to understand your psychology. I'm a gambler. I have the gambler's instinct. I have the gambling gene. And I think angel investing appeals to me because I can put 
30, 40% of my money into my Wealthfront account and keep it super safe and put it on a very low setting. And then I can take the rest and be hyper aggressive and try to build real serious wealth, like, you know, nine figure wealth in my life where, you know, like private jet wealth, like trying to really hit like some high, high number by taking risk. And I think you just have to be smart about having one set, I guess that people would call it a barbell, which is what I've gone after, which is really secure blended portfolio with low fees. And then on the other side, just complete insane angel investments that are, you know, nine out of 10 are going to zero and one out of 50 are going to go 100x or 50x or 5,000x, hopefully, or 1,000x or 500x, whatever it's going to be. But you have to be willing to manage your own psychology. And this is why poker is such a great analogy for angel investing or any investing. Because if you go on tilt and you start acting recklessly and you're not able to control the bad news, you're not going to be well suited for angel investing. I mean, if you think about public markets, you you listed like three times they went down over 50%. Now imagine investing in angel investing where in your second year of angel investing, the 10 companies you invested in year one come back to you, They seven or eight of them need money. And Two of them don't need money. They, they've hit some level of profitability or break even or they're having an easy time funding. But eight of them are struggling. And of those eight, six of them die in the second year. Now you're like, oh, wow, I just lost 60% of the hands I'm playing. Two of the hands are up and two of the hands are just even. Like The sophomore and junior year of angel investing are particularly brutal because you have all this bad news and people are begging you for money and you have to say no. And you have to say, you know, listen, there hasn't been enough progress for me to continue investing. Is, is that a decent kind of rule of thumb? I mean, in the book, you had a great quote said, the founders are no longer selling the promise, they're selling performance. Is it um, a general good rule of thumb? And you may or may not agree with this, that if, if the company's struggling and doing poorly, just like a straight up, the default answer should be no. And if it's seeing traction, say, yeah, I mean, is that, is that a kind of a decent? It may not. On a human level, it might you might not seem very decent by having that position, but I do think it's probably a cutthroat position that will eventually pay dividends because if you demand performance in a follow-on investment and you just say, listen, I'm an angel investor, I make one investment in 10 companies and the two that perform best, I quadruple down on, but if you don't have performance, I can't quadruple down, you have to show me. If you if you're upfront with a founder about that, you know, I very rarely follow on. I only follow on on breakout success. Then at least they can calibrate. They know they can't count on you for follow-on funding. Whereas venture funds will say, "Hey, here's when we follow on. We take our pro rata if things are okay, we lead rounds if it's breakout, and we may participate under our pro rata as a sign of support if you've worked hard, maybe you've gotten a couple of bad beats." So VCs with big chip stacks will probably define what their follow-on rules are up front. But for angels, I think you can be a little more fluid about it because you're not going to be the primary source of investment, nor do people expect it. If you're putting only 5 or 10K in in the first bet, they probably don't expect much. I have had people say, if you don't invest in this round, we're going to wipe out your rights in the next round. And you're not, you know, and they really get like a little aggressive about it. This doesn't happen often, but that's a bit of a tell as well. If the person is trying to strong arm you into investing. And then there's a pretty, I mean, it's kind of a wild West. I'm surprised that we haven't had a, either an investment bank or some inter- enterprising investors start a research boutique that really focused on this space. Yeah. Is there such a thing that exists? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of data startups. Yeah. I mean, the crunch bases of the world and previously venture source and, you know, some other databases, they're all like interesting indicators of uh, deal flow 
you know, you can follow the top investors is probably the best way to do it. So if somebody started interviewing and just all the Series A investor investments and starting to study them, that would be a good business. Mattermark, I think, did this to a certain extent, they, but they did it from a data view. So they were trying to come up with an index score, like a Mattermark score. But my startups all started to game it a bit. So the number of open positions you had in hiring on LinkedIn, I think, was put into it and some other things. And so they started backing into improving their score. So like I literally had one of my, I'll call it, lower third performing startups being the highest ranked on Mattermark because they had gamed it a bit. And Good I was just like, well, I was like, you know what? This is the this is the wrong way to, you know, approach it. It's like you really have to focus on the metric that reflects what matters most to your customers, right? So I, I kind of have to always get founders to stop thinking about how to game startup land and playing the video game startups and playing the video game of customers. <laughs> like literally my inbox is filled with, how do I convince investors to do this? How do I convince VCs to do that? And I'm like, how do you convince customers to buy your product? Let's answer that question. How do you convince people who are using your product to use it twice as much or tell their friends about it? Let's focus on those questions, not how to game investors who are savvy and who know how to look at the key metrics and make a decision. From someone who's kind of, you know, the dumb money that's trying to learn here, who's, I've, I think I'm up to like 25 deals now. By the way, I was part of your robotic coffee deal. Oh, you were in Cafe X. I was in Cafe X. I haven't been to the Metreon to have one yet, but I've seen a very wide spectrum of quality of both syndicates and investor sort of treatment. And one of the things you talked about in the book is how important, you know, monthly or quarterly just updates in general are. And across the spectrum, I mean, there's probably half or a third don't offer updates at all to where I'll I'll email the CEOs and be like, look, you know, I'm, we're in your world. We, you know, we're a billion dollar money manager almost like, I understand the space, but like, why wouldn't you do this? So I've been the champion of these monthly updates and I basically started by trying to convince people to do it. And now I've demanded it. So what I did was I started by, you know, basically saying, hey, if you send updates, you'll have an easier time raising money. And I had a bunch of companies that were super entitled who were like, I don't have the time. And it's like, if you're not tracking your sales or your P&L, then we've got a problem. So it shouldn't take you any time to grab that from your dashboard or your CFO or your COO or, 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 or whoever, your accountant, and send it to us. And I've had companies like Zirtual that were doing 10 million a year go out of business because they didn't have good operational controls in place and the finances were a mess. And that led to like a huge uh, brouhaha and a lot of investigations and and bad feelings and and mistrust and just nasty stuff that happened because they just weren't on top of it and sending the data as frequently as it needed to be. So then I said to people, if I invest, it's in my side letter. A side letter is a a letter agreement that goes outside of the normal convertible note or safe agreement that normal normally these investments occur via a loan vehicle that converts to equity and i put a side letter on it that says if i own over five percent i have an option of a board seat i have the right to information and these are the including these types of things and i will get a monthly update with how much money you have left, how much runway you have left, what the revenue is, et cetera. And then I told the people in my portfolio who came back for money, I'm not going to do follow-on funding unless you agree to do the monthly update. 
and that created a little bit of negotiation, but that's also worked. So now I have people sending monthly updates who previously wouldn't because they came back to the well for additional funding, and I just said, I'm going to hold the line on this. And so if you're a small investor in a syndicate, you may not be able to have the leverage I have or the influence just yet, but you will eventually. And I think asking them every month, hey, I didn't get the monthly update. This was what I used to do two years ago. Hey, haven't heard from you guys since January. It's been six months without an update. I may have missed an update. I checked my spam filter. Has there been an update since January? So I'm kind of like taking the approach of like, it's probably me. It's not you. I looked my spam. I mean, sometimes my email is flaky, but if there hasn't been one, I would love to get one. And I always end it with short is better than nothing. And I kind of, you know, herded cats for a long time. And I think if you're starting out, you can herd cats. Ask to meet with the founder. I'm going to be in town. I'm in your area. Would love to get coffee. Would love to meet the team. Even if you're only investing a thousand to five thousand dollars, they're going to probably want to meet with you because what founders know is if you put a thousand to ten thousand dollars in, you can probably afford to put ten thousand to a hundred thousand dollars in. If you're placing those bets that are small five or ten k bets, you probably have the ability to put fifty k in or a hundred k in if it's a breakout. So what I'm telling my founders that I invest in is curate that group. If you get 99 people in a syndicate who've each put in 3K on average in a Cafe X or something, well, the next time you do a syndicate, they might put 30K in, which is exactly what's happened with a lot of different companies like Cafe X that have good performance. People put a feeler bet in a 5K. The next time they put in a more convicted bet of 25K, just like if you wake up with 10 jacks suited in a pretty loose game and you're in position and you're on the button, you might you know, see a flop for 500 bucks. And hey, when it comes up and you've got an up and down straight draw and a flush draw and you hit a pair, like you got you, you flop the world, now you can put a bigger bet in, right? And now that founders understand that, they're starting to do the updates without having to be asked for them. The investors are often a big resource, you know, because many of them have networks and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yada, I always yada. tell them to put an ask at the bottom to see if people are actually reading it. So I say put the most important data up top, revenue, users, et cetera. Then follow it with the soft data, products, speaking gigs, other nonsense. You know, we're going to Summit at Sea, we're web summiting, whatever bullshit. Sorry, I don't know if I can curse on this, but whatever, be, whatever bullshit conference they're going to that's going to have no impact on their business, whatever award or startup competition they won that's going to have no impact on their business, no impact on their future. Like you can put all that nonsense below it, but generally, here's the core data in the business. Here's, what's co- here's what we're struggling with. Here's our asks. Like keep it simple. And that's really worked. And I've had so many companies that go out of business and they tell me, you know, their, their update is we're out of money, we're going out of business. Or the update is we're, we've gone out of business. Yeah, you know, and I'm just like, we closed shop six update. months ago, Jason. Yeah. No, it literally, has, it literally happened. I, you, I tell the stories in the books of all the bad behavior. And when the book was finished, they were like, hey, Jason, the book's great. We love it. It's going to be a perennial bestseller. We're so thrilled. This is my publisher voice please meet our general counsel at HarperCollins and let's talk about all the lawsuits that'll be triggered by this book. And that's when we changed all the names and scrubbed all the identifying information and composited the you know, stories a bit uh, to protect the guilty and innocent. Smart move. I'd love to keep you here all day. I, we're going to do a couple just really quick, short questions and then let you, uh, let you get running around Los Angeles. One of the things I don't think I saw in the book, and I may have skipped over it if I did, one of the huge benefits of kind of early stage investing is the QSBS, tax treatment, where a lot of investors don't know, but there's relatively recently over the past, I think it's a number of years, um, I think it stands for Qualified Small Business Stock. First $10 million 
and gains if you were issued stock and they file for this qualified small business, you get tax-free. In our startup land, they don't actually issue the shares for the f- three or four years, typically, because they're doing convertible notes, so it doesn't apply. But if it did apply, you would save $3 million in capital gains or something incredible. So that could be amazing. And actually, one of my venture partners, Mike Savino, is always bringing it up. So we're actually going on a little bit of an effort to get people to actually price their rounds and convert to shares and do this qualified small business thing. We talk a lot about taxes, and that's like the best way you can add alpha to anything is just avoiding paying Uncle Sam. And it's like 10 million or 10X. I think you have to hold it for five years, maybe. Five years, yeah. But what a massive, and, and very few investors know about it, so look into it. It's a good one. It's a it's a really important one. And put, put it in addition to, of the book, if it's not in there. Yeah, we'll <laughs> definitely the be in the next edition, for sure. <laughs> All right, a couple questions. We had a few from Twitter. We actually answered most of the Twitter questions. One is, what's the most common reason an angel investor doesn't do very well? I think the we talked a little earlier about placing big bets early and not learning and not being patient. That's a big one. I think putting bad money after good, in other words, you know, just continuing to buy into a story that you know is not going to work. Terrible. Investing locally is, you know, probably makes you feel good if you're from Boston or Austin or San Diego, but that may not be in your best interest if you're the only angel investor in San Diego or Austin, it may make you feel good, but the chances of you hitting something big is low. So in the being in the wrong market, not recognizing where the hits are coming from. Now listen, if you go to Stockholm, they've had nine unicorns in a decade, so there's something in the water over there. Right? You, ever do any, you ever do any international? I have not, but I, I may. I do have a lot of companies that I find internationally and then I bring them to Silicon Valley. Cafe X, we talked about the Robata Coffee one that you were in the syndicate on. Cafe X is one that I found in Hong Kong. The person emailed me a video of a robotic coffee machine, and I said, is that a joke? And he said, no, it's not a joke. And I said, oh, if it's real, you should come to my incubator. They said, how do you get in? And I said, you already did. It starts in three weeks. Just get your ass over here. And I gave him 25K without ever meeting them because I was like, if this works and it takes 90% less space and 85% less humans and they charge a third less than Starbucks for the thing. This could be a huge revolution, right? To have robotic coffee machines everywhere. And if they can keep doing interesting things and learning about robotics, then maybe they just won't be making lattes. Maybe at some point they'll be doing latte art. This sounds crazy, I know. But I just had a meeting with the Cafe X team. And I don't want to... I guess I can share this. They they are going to be doing a tap for... Um, a nitro. And I was like, how do you make that work? And, you know, they're like, oh, well, we have a weight sensor and we have a video sensor so we can sense when the cup is full. But if it's got foam, we literally know how to pour a tap beer, which you think about like pouring a tap beer, like that sounds like something that a computer is not going to do particularly well because sometimes it comes out with a lot of foam, sometimes it doesn't, right? But if they could actually pour a tap of, you know, a nitrous coffee without and the robot can do it we're starting to get into the edge cases sort of like driving cars like if they can handle when like the lines have been painted over by accident or this fog or snow like those are the edge cases that are holding back self-driving people jumping into streets in san francisco homeless people like meandering into intersections or people who are drunk meandering into intersections snow ice fog these are the things that are keeping self-driving off the roads the model x and the Model 3, all these cars can already, that Tesla makes, can already do highway driving from here to, from LA to San Francisco, no problem. I mean, 
8% of miles are going to be flawless. It's those final two that are the hard, the edge cases. That's a fun fact, by the way, you'll learn in the book. I'm not going to give away any more, but Jason owns a serial number 0001 Tesla. Yeah, the signature Model S. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. A couple more quick questions and we'll be done. Uh, another Twitter question. Is equity crowdfunding a good idea for unaccredited ah, investors? Yes. We didn't get to this. How do you avoid adverse selection problem? Yeah, there is an adverse selection problem here. So, okay, equity crowdfunding means like Kickstarter, but you get a share in the company. So with Kickstarter or Indiegogo, you would buy the Pebble Watch ahead of time. You'd wait 18 months and depending on the product, you would probably in all likelihood be disappointed in the quality and the build, but you were part of some revolution in making you know, the first smartwatch. And actually, Pebble came out pretty good. That was a high quality product. But for other products, we all know the story that you order something on Kickstarter and never shows up is kind of the joke. I think in most cases, Kickstarter and Indiegogo have figured this out and, and they've worked to, get, worked to fix it. Now, equity crowdfunding exists where non-accredited investors in the United States can buy a share in a company. Sometimes they'll buy a share in the company and the product. So you give somebody a hundred bucks and you get, you know, the little tiny drone and you get a share in the company. The problem is a lot of the companies that have gone to equity crowdfunding sites, there are two that I think are high quality, Seed Invest and Republic. All the other ones, I'm not going to mention their names. I'm not in the business of deriding people. Well, I kind of am, but I won't in this case. All the other ones I think are a little fugazi. Be careful. I think Republic and Seedinvest have a much higher screening process for those equity crowdfunding sites. And so non-accredited investors can put, I think in most cases, maybe $250, $500 bets. So if you're placing $500 bets, I don't know that there's much damage that can be done unless you really are up against it in terms of paying your bills. So again, if you spread out your bets, I don't think it's going to be a disaster, but I think there is a signaling problem because it's still very complex to do an equity crowdfunding deal. It's cost money. And so the great companies may skip over syndicates unless there's a great syndicate lead doing it. So some people would argue even syndicates are negative signaling, like the top companies wouldn't have done that. I don't know if that's actually true. Like I think Uber would have done it. I think Thumbtack certainly would have. But that is an argument that some people make. On these equity crowdfunding sites, I do think there is in year one a definite negative signal, which is we have such a vibrant seed market with syndicates and seed funds and angel investors right now, you have to ask yourself, if somebody is going to an equity crowdfunding site, is there something wrong? Is there something where they couldn't clear market? And I think if you look at the companies on Republic or Seedinvest, the companies I see there, I don't get that sense that they couldn't clear market. I get the sense that they're enthusiastically trying to engage this new audience. Um, in other sites, I saw companies that I know couldn't clear market. So given my inside information, I've seen companies not clear market and then go to those kind of sites. But I do think that'll change over time. And we've actually got a partnership with Seed Invest where we've been putting five of their companies on stage at our events. And then I've been investing in some of them. And we we want to see equity crowdfunding work. So I am very uh, excited about it. And I would very much like to see someone like Cafe X or Blockable, some company that's starting to break out, get to 10,000 customers and email their 10,000 customers and have 1,000 of them participate for $500 each. It would be magical, which eBay did, right? At the IPO of eBay, they gave power sellers the ability to buy shares, I believe. Somebody can fact check that. But this has been the holy grail of a lot of marketplace sites and 
you know, sites with a large number of, let's say, drivers or hosts, like if Airbnb and Uber could have done something like this for the drivers alone, imagine emailing hundreds of thousands, millions of drivers or tens of thousands of hosts on Airbnb. The Airbnb hosts are making money. The test, the, the Uber drivers are making money. They know that this is working. They know the customers love it. And then they get to put some money into it. This could be incredibly powerful the next time a flywheel like this happens. If you had all these recruiters using LinkedIn and they had the opportunity, even though they were not accredited, and you just emailed all the recruiters on LinkedIn and said, dear LinkedIn, we now have 30 million people. We we now have 3 million people on the service. You've been enjoying it. We now have the opportunity for you to put a minimum of $500 and would anybody like to do it? And all of a sudden, 10,000 people do it and they raise $5 million and that's their Series A or Series B. It'd be incredible. There was a fun story. Was it Jet.com who had a contest where whoever signed up the most new accounts got a little equity and the equity ended up being worth like $10 million? It's There's incredible. a great story. I can't remember. I think it's a story, but it's yeah. a great fun story. There's some, you know, the SEC is, you know, pretty tight on these kind of regulations. So they, they are suddenly confronted with the world changing radically because in Europe, these rules don't exist, which is kind of interesting when you think about it. In Europe, where they're very protectionist, socialist, whatever, you know, they are sanctioning Google and the EU is giving them fines and it's a pretty fine filter over there when it comes to human resources and laying somebody off. But when it comes to actually investing in startups, they're more progressive. And when it comes to cryptocurrency, they're massively more progressive. We haven't even talked about that. I was going to bring that up. I think we're running out of time. I was going to talk about, we'll have to get you back on a year from now and talk about crypto, but- Bitcoin, 400,000? Oh, man, there's so many, There's so much here. I mean, I, just, the, the listeners are going to be drooling. They're going to, they're going to ICOs, to, be careful. I, yeah. I think all, almost every ICO I've seen is for a company that does not exist. And giving a company that does not yet exist 30 million or $150 million, I can tell you from- having seen this movie before, is going to result in a lot of zeros. Like literally what we do as angel investors is we look for performance and then reward it with a continued investment over time. What these ICOs are doing is dark money is going into these companies that have an idea. The last time I saw ideas get funded like this was special special acquisition vehicles. SPACs. And you were looking for Mm. the name, I think, on the last episode or whatever. You're like, what was that thing called? And I I think SPACs were like, you had to define that you knew what you were going to buy, something in this range, right? You had an idea, but you would raise this money from public markets. We're going to get $100 million, and then we're going to buy something sort of in the food space between this value and this value. And then before that, there was a company, uh, incubators were going public, like Idea Lab was going to go public, and other incubators had gone. I forgot the name of the big East Coast one that Vertical Net, I think, had gone public, and another one had gone public. Anyway, these incubators are going public in the dot-com boom on the idea that they would raise $100 million and then start a series of companies. Is that CMGI or did they CMGI was one of the incubators, yeah. I have some tax loss carry-forwards probably from that from when I was Right, but these things old. became worth billions of dollars in some cases, or hundreds of, they'd raised hundreds of millions of dollars before actually having a product. When you see that happen, that should be send, signaling alarm bells for everybody. Yeah, we, we we certainly see a lot of the speculative behavior, and I, I got no I got no dog in this fight. I'm, I've been a, a positive cheerleader for cryptos in general, but all my friends that shouldn't be asking me about this are. That's just my yeah, one. Yeah, when your comment. gas sta- when the gas station attendant is, I always remember this when the dot com boom, like I literally was getting gas, and the gas station attendant saw I had like a dot com shirt on, and was like, "Hey, I just bought DoubleClick. What do you think I should buy? You know, like the Globe?" And I was like. The Globe is run by two idiots. 
I nobody should buy the Globe. The Globe's going public. What? You're a gas station attendant asking me about the Globe.com. It was like T Glow, really? I remember the ticker symbol. Like it's a complete disaster. Three more quick ones. What's the most series rounds you've ever heard of in VC? Like, like, is there? Have you heard of like a Series M? Like, how how far down the alphabet have we ever gotten? Do you know? I don't know the answer to that. I think they typically stop naming them. <laughs> After like the E and the F round, it's just sort of like there's been a funding, but that was always a, just a know. curiosity. I've, I've never I've, I hear about yeah. some of these that just go on and on. And there was actually so I, I attended Jason's Angel Conference in Napa, which was wonderful. And one of the most thoughtful presentations was a lady who actually had a, a great perspective. She's like, once we invest, she's like, I don't want to see a lot of our companies doing follow-on rounds. She's like, I would love to see them just have great success and never need yeah. any more money. I'm trying to remember who that was, but she was a really wonderful speaker. Yeah, she was great. Um, uh, I forgot right now. It'll okay. come to me. But that's actually, if if you think about like Google, I think they raised like one round of funding and then they were done. Like it can happen that great companies can do this. But in a market where there is unlimited capital, raising capital from great investors at high prices if your business is a real business, kind of a smart person would do that. Outsiders is a great, fantastic book on the public markets about um, trying to think of capital allocation. You know, most CEOs think of operating the business as the and selling the widgets is the sexy part, but capital allocation, um, you know, when to issue stock, when to buy it back, when to pay dividends, at least in the public markets, is a very big driver of performance. Three more quickies. Sorry, there's one that I forgot. Podcasting space. From I mean, there's probably not a lot of people that have put out as many podcasts as you. One of the challenges, some listeners are going to listen to this and say, oh man, I got to start listening to Jason's podcast. This Week in Startups. Where do you start? Um, well, if you go to thisweekinstartups.com, you can take a look or our YouTube channel. Um, you'll see like the top 10 episodes or whatever, but just, I would sign up for it and just. And is that is that by like downloads? The top 10 episodes? Um, I think it's curated by our, oh, our so, team. So, but see, this is a rarity and this is something that I struggle with where, you know, it, it, would be great if it was a feature of one of the platforms. So if Castro or Overcast or Apple did it, but none of them are doing it where there's like a Rotten Tomatoes, the podcast space. Yeah, by episode would be great. Discovery is a bit of a problem. Uh, what we're doing now is we have four full-time people on the show. If you follow TWI Startups on Twitter, we're starting to put out clips from the archive. So we just tweeted Peter Thiel, Kevin Systrom from Instagram, Tim Ferriss, Paul Graham from Y Combinator. So we're now going to the archive from 2011 to 2014 and pulling clips, putting text over them and releasing them with links to the episode, you know, at This Week in Startup slash 194 or whatever Kevin Systrom was on, episode 194. And we're starting to release those to sort of just let people know that these great episodes even exist. But it's, you know, it's so easy to produce content, but it really is expensive to curate it and package it and to do videos. So we're literally spending, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year producing the show. I'm building a new studio right now in San Francisco because we do two episodes a week. It's it's a it does a million dollars a year, but it's a lot of work. A lot of work. It's a lot of fun, a lot of work, but but this goes back to the curation theme where nothing gets me angry when I'm walking my dog in the morning, commit to an hour long podcast and it's just terrible. You know, it's yeah. of the 10 I listen to per week, I would love to have it ranked and say, well, oh, no, you need to skip this one. It's a snoozer. But listeners, the business idea, one of you can, can run with it. We'll invest in it. Two more quick questions. Uh, we listen to, this- I'll give you my, my tip for a good one. Sam Harris's podcast, mm-hmm. really great. Mm-hmm. 
And then Brett Easton Ellis has a podcast that's really great. The film director and the writer. I don't know that one. Yeah, Brett Easton Ellis, like um, who did Less Than Zero and American Psycho, has his own podcast, okay. the BEE podcast. He's really great at interviewing people. Sam Harris, the notable um, thinker and brain scientist who talks about all kinds of great. Trump now I have Muslim. two more podcasts to listen to. I'm telling to. you, both these podcasts are just job. aces. Well, you got to put them on double and you got to do I, when you're I walking. I can do 2X. 2X. You, you speak a little faster than I do though. I don't know yeah. if people could do 2X with you, like no. 1.5 maybe. They slowed me down in my audiobook. <laughs> they were like, go slower. <laughs> two more. Well, we asked this of every guest. What's your? What's been your I mean, most memorable investment? Well, clearly Uber has had the you know the greatest run, so that would be it. It's surreal to be an investor in a company like that. And yeah. listeners, I, 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 we may have just glossed over it, but Jason was a, a straight up angel on that, right? Yeah, third or fourth investor is what I was told in the company. And you know, there were, that was the four or $5 million round. And obviously the company's worth 50, 60, 70 now. And you know, people like benchmark smart people think it's going to go five or 10 X from here and it'll be worth hundreds of billions. Um, and I, you know, sure. Uh, I think that's a, a distinct possibility. Um, I, you know, nothing's a certainty, but what's, what's been the most kind of frustrating or I don't want to say worst, but what's, is there one that sticks out on the, on the other side? Yeah. I've got a bunch in the book where I talk about sort of bad stories and just, you know, things dying, I try to not obsess over the losses, but there's a lot of times where a company, like, you know they could have succeeded if they just didn't make certain mistakes, um, or you just really wanted them to exist in the world, or the founder put in a massive effort and you really wanted to see them succeed. So we had an on-demand food company called Bento that was doing bento boxes and bringing it out, and they got to you know thousands of bentos a week, but the unit economics were hard because they could only ship 1.5 per thing and people wanted to get it for $12 and $18 was too much. You get the idea. But then they started doing catering and that started to work and they were at a million dollar run rate and Zertual was another one that was at $10 million and that should have worked. And in both cases, you know, the founders just put in colossally awesome efforts and you know those problems will get solved at some point, food delivery, and um, outsourced virtual assistants. Magic is doing it now uh, over SMS, and it's pretty delightful. So, yeah, those two were pretty frustrating for me. Last question. Yeah, here we go. Tell me about this hot new ice cream startup. Yeah, so uh, I have a seven-year-old daughter, and I have uh, identical twin girls, and I've been thinking a lot about the world they're going to inherit. And I... Having seen what I see, I think a large percentage of jobs are going away. We didn't talk about universal basic income or any of these major issues that the world faces. But you know, as a gimme, 30 million retail and driving jobs are going away completely, which is a large percentage of the employed people in the United States. And I think the world could go into a complete tailspin with AI and robotics and a lack of employment. And I think it's going to be very hard for young people to navigate, just like you look at millennials graduating from school with massive debt and not being able to figure out their way in the world and living on their parents' couches. So I'm trying to optimize for leadership, courage, grit, you know, independence, vision, uh, risk-taking in my daughters. And so my seven-year-old really comes to my incubator and we're talking about what business she might want to start and she said ice cream so then we got it she saved up her money got an ice cream machine we did market research went to all the top ice cream stores in san francisco this which a lot, of them. lot by the way that's There's, a tough competitive market for her it is <laughs> and so we went to them and we visited them we took notes and she just made her first batch of ice cream it was 
vanilla spinach ice cream with peanut M&Ms in it. <laughs> I'm telling you, it was green. It tasted delicious. And I, I think she hit it out of the park with her first batch. So I got her this nice like uh, $300 ice cream machine and now we're doing that as a business. And if, I told her if she could sell 50 pints to her friends and family members, we'll open up a, like a pop-up store or something. And if that goes well, we'll open up a permanent store. So I'd like to see her have her own small business at the age of 10 to 12 where she goes to and runs that business after school. Maybe that's a good niche. Ice cream that otherwise sounds terrible but tastes delicious. Yeah, I mean, like, think about it. If we made cricket ice cream or something like that with high protein in it, like, that would be a draw to the store. Like, they'd be like, I remember there was lobster ice cream at some place in Maine. And, you know, there's always, you know, like, most people in the party won't eat it, but somebody eats it and then talks about it. So, I think doing some crazy ice creams would be a lot of fun for kids. So... I think it's, you know you, you could turn that actually that would be probably a really you know book number two Jason would be a young person's guide to entrepreneurship guide. it could even be a comic book yeah that would be great graphic novel All right. graphic I read graphic novels with her that's like a really another great thing that's happened she got any you know that's actually probably the kindest thing my parents did to me as a child is they said look Mab middle class family dad grew up on a farm but they said we will anything you want to read we'll buy you. There period books period straight up and so i unlimited so book then, budget so then <laughs> next thing you know like three months later that i have like 15 different comic book subscriptions just coming to the house like awesome. every day i said look you that's what you said tough i think it's a good move uh, yeah. i still i still have all most of them look jason it's been a blast today where yeah. can people uh follow you where's the best places yeah. so the best thing to do uh is um follow me on twitter jason J-A-S-O-N or Instagram Jason Instagram's mostly family photos Twitter I actually talk uh, about stuff all day long and my email is Jason at Calacanis.com you'll get a message that says this email gets 500 emails a day and that I don't read it but in fact I do that's just my little test for entrepreneurs see if they give up um and uh, yeah very easy and, and the if, podcast This Week in Startups This Week in Startups yeah that's a great and place and blog uh, calicanus.com I really haven't been blogging all that much but uh, you can sign up for my email there at calicanus.com and yeah read the book and if you like it write a review if you don't like it email me tell me what you don't like Jason at Calicanus Jason thanks for <laughs> thanks for joining us my pleasure uh, listeners thanks for taking the time to join us today we always welcome feedback questions feedback on the mebfavorshow.com as a reminder you can find the show notes and other episodes at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast subscribe to the show on iTunes just like Jason said if you're enjoying it or hating it whatever please leave a review thanks for listening friends and good investing <laughs>